everyone, Soundlord here. A couple things. First of all, this is our long-anticipated Black Panther episode, and we talked a lot. So this will be broken up into two parts. This is part one. The other thing is that we had a lot of trouble getting this episode recorded. Our uh, recording software, the program that we use, was not cooperating. We actually had to record this across multiple nights, and our second recording... There is something up with the audio that was not apparent while we were recording. I've been doing the best I can, uh, but you will notice a dip in audio quality probably about 35 minutes into this episode or so. I do apologize. I did my best. Uh, Hopefully you can still listen. Hopefully you all still enjoy it. And now on to the Black Panther episode, part one. There was an idea. Dormammu, I come to bargain. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Asking Robbins always finds out. I have further faster, baby. Are you Tony Stank? I am Iron Man. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective, the show where we reassemble the MCU piece by piece, movie by movie. I am your host, Eduardo, and today I have assembled a talkative tribe to talk all about Black Panther. I am so psyched to talk about this movie. I have lots and lots and lots of things to say, but first, let me introduce my co-host for this episode. I've got Peaches. Welcome in his way back. What's up, Peach Man? I'm Peach Man. He's alive. Actually, I I um, listed myself in Zencaster as Mpichu. So if you could refer to me as Mpichu. No, because then you I sound would. like a Pokemon. Um, I also have... <laughs> What's wrong with that? That's the point. <laughs> um, we've got resident writer for All Things Squad Up, Robbie. Who? Who? <laughs> Okay, I I lied. We actually have DMX himself on the podcast. (laughs) Who knew? Yo, he just gave it to you. Uh, We also have sound editor, all things squad up and assembly required, the sound lord himself, Chris. Hi. Hi, Chris. (laughs) I don't have have a fun, I I don't know how to follow any of that up. And joining me for this episode, and all of us for this episode, my wife, Bailey, is here. Bailey, legal expert for all things assembly required and squad up. Hi, Bailey. Hello. (laughs) Um, So we're talking about Black Panther. Like I said, this movie is very important to me. It's very important to Bailey. Um, And so we're going to talk a lot about it. Uh, Maybe I'll even go all MJ like Robbie did a couple weeks ago and, and yell at somebody. Who knows? There's so much to look forward to in this movie. But you like the movie. Well, yeah. If somebody says something that, that I don't like, I'll just go MJ on them. Oh, I see what yeah, you're, yeah, saying. Yeah. you're saying. Okay. That's all. We appreciate yeah, your diversity of opinions here on Squad We Up, do. Or Assembly Required or whatever the You heck can have as diverse <laughs> opinion as you want, and I can yell at you about it. I mean, that's... Supposedly, people do true. like that, so... <laughs> people like the, the, the arguing... I Actually, oh, hey, did uh, did Vicky get to the gun part yet? I meant to ask. She did not. Okay. Good for you, Vicky. But, but... Don't don't get to that part. <laughs> she has no way of hearing no, this until after she's no. I think she should get to that part. And 
Bailey can back me up on this one. <laughs> God, here we go. Because oh, we God. have asked multiple people, multiple people, and they have all said the imagery is there. All right? So just because... Well, I've asked multiple people and they've said it isn't. So my uh, my appeal to Populum is just as good yeah, as yours. Well, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm smart, you're dumb. What people I'm have big, you asked? Oh God! Here we go. Just, what do you mean? What people have I asked? Hey, Soundlord, what are Someone, you doing? We're, right we're now? talking about Black Panther. Bailey. Last I checked, we can talk about whatever we want to. Are you gonna read the fan email? Yeah, I'm gonna read it. Hold on, you guys keep talking. <laughs> oh my I'm God. trying to pull it up. Oh yeah. Why don't you just go to your email? We got a fan email just, about well, the canon. Oh no, I'm not reading that one. Oh. That one's not getting read. Why? You're not gonna read Alejandra's email? <laughs> I will not read that email. It is not appropriate <laughs> for this podcast. You can read like an excerpt or two. <laughs> okay, hang on. What is Don't worry, I already read it. Don't worry, I already read They're it. They're not sending us sexy emails, are they? <laughs> I was crying the whole so, time. This <laughs> email is actually Dear Assembly um, Required. What are you wearing? From Sexy Email. This email comes to us um, from listener of the show. Mike says, Hey guys, just caught up on Assembly Required and he's loving it. He's gonna start squat up soon for more content. Great. Um, however, I did have to write in to disagree with Robbie about MJ. Ho 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 ho. The MCU, for the most part, is not strictly adherent to the comics, and I think that's necessary for the series as a whole to live. However, the MCU leans heavily on shorthand at times, which is also very important to do ensemble movies. Um, That way, they can tell many stories without making them each three hours long. The use of MJ is nothing more than shorthand to tell a wide general audience that this is Peter Parker's future love interest, especially when he spent the movie with a separate love interest. There are many differences between the MCU Spider-Man, specifically the 90s Spider-Man you reference. Honestly, other than the name identity, you could argue this MCU version is completely different. He could just be the Iron Lad, honestly, but I would rather have the entire MCU with Iron Man, Cap, Doctor Strange, etc. than a more screen-accurate version of all of these comics. The MCU is its own thing, and the comics have, always have to be left at the door when watching them. Although I agree the 90s Spider-Man MJ is awful. So, Robbie, it looks like he, he pointed that right at you. He, he took his, his penis cannon, and he directed it right at you. <laughs> I want off this episode. Right Thank now. you for listening to the show, Mike. Can I read just an excerpt of Alejandro's? Fine. Okay. No, you can't. Can Bailey replace me on this episode? <laughs> I am a concerned listener and lifelong Jesus <laughs> and lifelong friend and lifelong Jesus. <laughs> and would like to address the comments made about Zendaya being the new Mary Jane in the recent Spider-Man remakes. Um, so he does provide a definition of homage. And says that homage, 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 homage. Thank you, Bailey. <laughs> homage, <laughs> homage. And says that um, the MJ initials are just an homage to Mary Jane, and that he also says that MJ is nothing more than a love interest to Peter in the original comics, and she is arguably one of the most recognizable characters, but would hardly say she's the most important. And he just kind of goes on about how she doesn't really have her own personality other than being Peter's love interest. Um, and then he ends it with, for- <laughs> fourthly, the comments made about the Sam Raimi trilogy were offensive, wrong, and disgusting. <laughs> He's entitled to his opinion. He's just a lifelong friend and a fan. I don't remember. What were the comments about the Sam that Raimi trilogy? That we liked it. Oh, he said Spider-Man 2 it. was like the best movie. Didn't most of y'all agree? I did not. 
I wouldn't no. have if I was no. there. But one of our listeners, Kelsey, was very happy that oh, someone said did she, that. Did she write it? I would like to. If we're if we're on the subject of Kelsey, write emails. If we're talking about the, the two episodes ago on the Black Panther episode, I just would like to point out that y'all said that I like, and it made it sound like I like the entire Amazing Spider-Man duo of movies when really i only like the first one and i don't even think it's that great i just i like tried it. to back you up on that because i i too like the first i like them Spider-Man. both hot take okay that is a hot oh my take god the second one is garbage that is the hottest take clearing that things on the show. that's the hottest take <laughs> in the history of the show angela fell asleep when we saw amazing spider-man 2 in theaters and she missed electro playing the itsy bitsy spider on the power plant Oh. Or whatever that was. <laughs> whatever that was. I was going to buy them His both, rendition. and Eduardo said no. Artist. Good rendition. job, Eduardo. All right. And I spent the whole movie going, oh, this is the part where Gwen dies. <laughs> Electro in Mobile, Alabama. Artist rendition. All right. Let's get back on topic. We're talking about Black Panther today. Are um, we? And <laughs> so. Are you sure? There's a, a short disclaimer before we begin this episode. Uh, I want to first start off by saying none of us here that are speaking about this movie are African-American. Um, and so the points that we're going to be giving are from our own perspective, but there are going to be some things that are probably going to be left out because we don't have necessarily the perspective to evaluate this movie 100%, but we're going to do our darndest to do it the best that we can. So, um, Robbie, you're going to start us off with a little bit of historical context about the character and the character from the comic book perspective. Yeah, and so honestly, that's a good disclaimer as I get into this, because Black Panther is incredibly important because he was the first black uh, mainstream comic book superhero. In 1966, which is incredibly stupid that it took until 1966 to have a black mainstream uh, superhero, and without his own comic book, by the way, that's also important. So, like, that was our first black mainstream comic book superhero, and he didn't even have his own run at that point. Um so that was things moving way too slow. And kind of in your disclaimer, I am aware that that's a problem. I am not going to pretend that I fully understand how big of a problem that is because it's not my experience. Um, but that's obviously extremely important. Sixties. So. <laughs> that's also yeah. true. I was not around in 1966. Let me confirm that. Um, but okay, so T'Challa, the Black Panther, created by a couple white guys. I feel like that also needs to be. Uh, needs to be mentioned as well uh, right certainly some african-american creators have have like taken him a lot yes. of places but i guess yes. you'll get into that i'll shut up now well yeah absolutely <laughs> um such a thing would be probably done better today than it was in 1966 so um important but imperfect is that the right way of putting it yeah. um i feel like actually bailey's the right person to judge me on this but um anyway t'challa the black panther Uh, simultaneously exists as, and this is hilarious to me, but comic books are meant to be hilarious, um, as a member of the Avengers, as a basic run-of-the-mill New York City superhero, and also the king and protector of the advanced country of Wakanda, um, which is a a country hidden in in Africa that manages to keep itself basically completely cut off from the outside world, but is incredibly rich and technologically advanced. Um, So he is not only their king, he is their protector, the Black Panther, Um, who has a costume and powers as part of the role of Chief Protector. He first appeared in the Fantastic Four, um, number 52, in 1966. Um, He invites the Fantastic Four to come visit him in his African nation of Wakanda, 
They're super amazed at all the technology and everything. And then he puts on his little suit and he attacks them. Um, and so at first he appears like he's the villain. He's uh, fighting the Fantastic Four. Um, it turns out to be this whole thing where he's just like testing. Oh, and he bests them. That's kind of important to this. And, you know, power levels are not consistent in superhero comic books. But I do need to point out that the Black Panther on his own takes all out all of the Fantastic Four together. That's um, legit. Which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Um, but it turns out all to be this test. And he really just wants to be friends with them and ask them to help him um with uh, oh and he shows he has the abilities of the panther as they say um he has heightened speed strength stamina um, heightened senses um and agility um which is all something he gets because his right as king is to eat the heart-shaped herb that only grows in wakanda that gives you all of those powers um and what he tells the fantastic four is that he really just uh, needs them to help him take out um his arch nemesis ulysses claw who is, and I am not joking, because comic books are ridiculous, a poacher who is literally made of personified sound. Um, when he does weird things with his sound, like he makes constructs out of sound. It's Can you relate to that, Chris? I can. Uh, <laughs> actually, I remember I was reading, uh, I want to say it was Secret Wars, um, but I was reading some old comic. I think it was that, and this ridiculous looking character showed up and he's using sound waves and they refer to him as claw and i'm like wait a minute wait is that is that ulysses claw and i looked up and yes it was and i was not familiar with the comic book version of claw and it was strange oh really <laughs> so i was familiar with claw before he was in the movie and i remember when ultron was coming out and they were saying that um what's his name andy circus um, yes andy circus was gonna be claw I'm like claw is gonna be in the movies how is that gonna work and it worked yeah, out okay. It actually made perfect sense um, the way they integrated him. Yes, actually. Yes, I agree. Um, but anyway, so Claw had killed T'Challa's father. He wanted the vibranium. Um, when Claw killed T'Challa's father, T'Challa fought back and managed to... I'm not even going to try and explain this because the dark side is the pathway to many abilities that some consider to be unnatural. But he turned Claw into sound. Um, so now Claw wants revenge and the vibranium. The Fantastic Four obviously band together with uh, Black Panther and stop him. And they are all friends now. Uh, the Black Panther proved popular enough to guest star in lots of other comics. He guest starred in Captain America. He guest starred with Daredevil. Um, he officially joined the Avengers in 1968. And since then, he has been one of the most iconic members of the Avengers. Um, sort of we talked about in the Thor episode that Thor mostly exists. He has had his own comics. But Thor mostly exists as a member of the Avengers. And for the most part, that's true with Black Panther as well. He's got this cool backstory and this cool side job as a king of an advanced nation. But he mostly exists as a very important member of the Avengers. Um, and has since 1968. Yeah. Um, he's had his got his first on, ongoing in 1973. Tackled a lot of social issues all the way up to literally. There's a run that's called Black Panther versus the Klan. Um, but uh, it was very popular with college students, and we talked about this with Doctor Strange as well. I felt very familiar. But college students loved Black Panther, but that was not enough of an audience for it to continue. Um, it ended in 1979. He's had, I think, three more runs since then. But mostly he just exists as a guest star in other comics um, and as an Avenger. And he is, I think he's actually interesting because I think Black Panther is one of the most famous and successful superheroes that doesn't really exist on his own very often. He's His fame comes from how popular he is as a frequent guest star and a member of the Avengers. Um, and I think that's very interesting. It just sounds but like incredibly important. to me, but... <laughs> I, I I would well, like to interject a little bit because 
of Black Panther has had an ongoing since 2018 now, uh, okay. and it, and it's uh, uh, Tanahazi Coates has been writing it, and it was actually his first comic. If you're familiar, Tanahazi Coates is a journalist. Uh, well, well, I'm, I guess he, he still is technically a journalist, but a writer of of many things. Uh, a lot a lot of you know great think pieces, social commentary, and uh, he got into comics by writing Black Panther, and he's continued right. he's been writing black panther since 2018 uh and well i want to say he's even started before that uh i feel like this uh wikipedia is oh yeah no he started in 2016 actually writing black panther uh and he continues to write black panther to this day and he actually started writing right. captain america in 2018 as well um but yeah but black panther especially uh, the the new comics obviously debuted a couple years before the movies and they ended up being very popular and then the movie came out and of course it's gotten even more popular. Yes. So, so I think black Panther has now kind of like Thor has now solidified himself, even though he was originally, as you said, more famous for just being an Avenger. Uh, both those characters have now had very successful ongoings. Yeah. In that makes time. sense. So I think that they've kind of cemented themselves now as mainstays in the Marvel comic universe. And I would agree with what Eduardo said of that sounds like social. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, another important Black Panther writer to mention, I think, would also be Christopher Priest, who uh, started writing Black Panther in the early 90s, I want to say. And I think I could be wrong, but I think he was the first African-American writer to actually write Black Panther. I know he was the first African-American mm. editor at Marvel uh, starting in the 70s, um, but he also wrote his first, you won't believe this, but the first uh, story he ever wrote for Marvel was about Falcon. Uh they don't put people in boxes, um, um, but then he wrote. Uh, then he wrote a very. I think he wrote Black Panther for a very long time. I, I, I could be wrong. I'm going this all off the top of my head, and let me see if I can just pull up real quick uh, how long he wrote uh, Black Panther, and it was um, uh, not in Wikipedia. So I'm sorry. I have no answers for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine you're just making work for yourself in the yeah, future yeah that's fine <laughs> anyway that's black panther yeah he's cool oh 1998 to 2003 <laughs> uh he wrote black panther that's a long time now bailey as far as production and release of this movie and sort of the the transition from the comics to what we get on screen give us a little bit of info about that so Eduardo's asking me that, knowing that I don't really have any info because we were supposed to research and I started my research and then had to do homework. So I did not finish my research <laughs> and he can clearly see I don't have the answers to these questions, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I will do it just based off of what I did read. Um, Cause I just tried to look up the Wikipedia page and the production That's honestly tab probably of enough. Black Panther is very very long and i read some articles about the really high budget for black panther i think they spent like 190 to 200 million dollars which is on the higher end of like standalone marvel movies um but it's because they wanted to make sure they got like the culture of black panther correct um so from the like costumes to the hair of the women to the set pieces that was all um like they created an o their own world, but it was based off of like real life places in Africa and based on real people in Africa. So they wanted to kind of be 
historically accurate while also creating like a new world in Wakanda. Um, and that's all I got. Also, that Black Panther ended up doing really well, making over a billion dollars, I think, and it was nominated for seven Oscars. And the, moving over from the, the comics job. to the movies, there were some problematic characters in uh, in Black Panther oh, that yeah. have since yes. been changed yes. to be a lot less problematic. Uh, M'Baku is the one that... M'Baku, that, that, you couldn't be talking about M'Baku. Yeah, that <laughs> comes to mind first, right? Uh yeah. Yes. He, Known in the comics he, as he, Man Ape. Yeah, <laughs> and there's not much more you have to say than that. Yeah. And, and Nikita. Oh yeah, Nikita she is problematic as well, right? I know she's a villain. Yeah, I want to say she was kind of like the obsessive like ex girlfriend kind of trope in that in the comics. I could be um, wrong. Isn't her name like? I just looked her up, and her super villain alias is Malice. Yeah, that doesn't seem that bad. Is it okay? Maybe I'm thinking of something else, but but I do know that she's a villain in the comic, and she became yeah, you're right, it's Malice. She's a villain in the comic. She becomes a um, hero in the movie, which is fine. Yeah, um, it's not yeah, like Malice was I, a super important character in the mythology of Black Panther, and how dare they change it? Yeah, I think like the MJ. Mbaku change was perfect and important. All right, well, let's dig into this movie. So the movie opens with a voiceover, Sterling K. Brown as Njobu. He is talking to his son, and we are learning a little bit about the five tribes of Wakanda. That they warred over the metal vibranium found in a meteor. Um, a chief ingests the heart-shaped plant, getting the powers of the panther, uniting the tribes, except for the Jabari tribe, and leading Wakanda to great, but secret to the rest of the world, prosperity. We flash forward to 1992 in Oakland, California, and Bailey brought up a really interesting point. We're already going to get into something interesting right here. This takes place, a lot of people theorize, during um, the riots happening um, in 1992, the LA riots. And so um, yeah. I think it's, it is meant to be a point to show the sort of the conflict in the world from the very beginning. Like, look at the conflict that is happening in this world, and then we move over to beautiful wakanda also i read this beautiful that talked about how um they thought oakland was an intentional choice because the black panther party was started in oakland california um and there is also a poster in what year huey newton who's one of the co-founders of the black panther party um in sterling k brown's apartment just like yeah something i did not point out Black Panther started in 1966. The Black Panthers started in 1966, but after Black Panther, the comic book. Yes, I actually almost said that because I feel like that's, I remember there being some people who were fake outrage saying, oh, you you name a a character Black Panther. You couldn't name a character Clan Man. I was like, well, no, not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Ku Klux Klan. (laughs) What? Some sort of underwater racist villain? We have to stop. Eduardo, all you need to know is the Simpsons did it. Oh, okay. So, uh, See, now my brain just went to Citizen Snips, <laughs> which is neither racist nor the Simpsons, but it's a supervillain, <laughs> underwater shellfish supervillain from a Matt Groening show, so it works. Anyway, I'll shut up. So, 1992, King T'Chaka of Wakanda arrives in Oakland, accusing his brother, Njobu, of helping Ulysses Claw steal vibranium from Wakanda and orders him to come home to stand trial. We also find um, Zuri there, who has been um, 
impersonating a, a, a sort of a citizen of Oakland, a friend of Unjobu, um, and sort of being undercover to spy on the king's brother. So we fast forward present day, Wakanda king. Um, well, soon to be king T'Challa, whose father just died soon to be king. in the events of civil war, and his general Okoye rescue T'Challa's ex-flame. He freezes up uh, Nikita Nikia from an undercover human trafficking mission, needing her to return for T'Challa's coronation. Uh, T'Challa returns to Wakanda, revealing to the audience it is hidden behind a projection, keeping the outside world from seeing its cities and technology. And we get the first real, real view of Wakanda, and it is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke a lot of them last episode, Thor Ragnarok, where I talked about the, the flight of the Valkyries scene and how beautiful it was. And I talked about how I don't think anything could like come close to that. And I immediately am going to eat my words because this movie is stunning. This movie is absolutely stunning. And you know, when I think of Thor Ragnarok, I think of Flight of the Valkyries specifically. And I kind of go, wow, that's a really good scene. When I look at this movie, I can say that maybe 16, 17 times in this movie where I go, wow, this is such a phenomenal, phenomenally shot scene that like I could just, I could just salivate over these these stills any day. Not to mention the music that's going on here. And Chris, the oh, music in this gosh. movie. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk a lot now. <laughs> um, <'cause>... You? No. <laughs> I know. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. Chris talking a lot? That never happens. Um, yeah, so... First of all, like T'Challa says, this never gets uh, like this never gets old. Or I never get tired of it, and the same is true for me. I get goosebumps every time I see this scene too, uh, and a big part of that is the music. I, I I am a firm believer that music can make or break a movie, and uh, Ludwig Göransson's uh, score for this movie is fantastic, and it won an Oscar, and I remember leaving go- leaving that movie going, this movie I want this movie to get nominated for best score. And I think it's funny that after years of hearing people talk about how Marvel movie scores aren't memorable, that one got an Oscar. Uh, and I was doubly happy because I'm a Ludwig Göransson fan anyway. I've enjoyed his work since he was, he was the composer for Community. Uh, if anyone ever watched that show. And uh, he used to collaborate, and I guess he probably still does, uh, collaborate with Childish Gambino. Who was on Community? And so that... was on Community. <laughs> there we go. Uh-huh. And uh, and you might have recently heard his work on The Mandalorian. So yeah, so he's he's got a, a pretty great body of work, I think. And I think he's done. Um, uh, Ryan Coogler who directed this movie. I want to say that they that he is his go to composer. I know he did Creed. I'm not sure, if, and I'm not going to switch over and look it up and see if he did Fruitvale Station or not. Uh, but I know they've collaborated a lot. Um, I think they actually met through Donald Glover as well. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. so um, so when the uh, uh, a couple really great things about the music. Uh, first of all, oh, I need to look this up because I want to get um, the uh, the name right because he collaborated with uh, um, an artist. Um, I will. Here we go. I, I will keep talking about my friend. Um, he collaborated with an artist um, named Ah Baba Mal. Uh, Baba Mal. Um, uh, 
uh, who is, I believe, he he's an African artist uh, because he wanted to get, you know, an, he wanted to be authentic and true to African culture. Uh, he's Senegalese. He's Senegalese, um, a Senegalese singer and guitarist. Um, he's well known in Africa and internationally one of Senegal's most famous musicians. Uh, so they worked together on a lot of the score, you know, to make sure that there was, a, you know, sort of an authenticity to that score because Ludwig Gornson is uh, Swiss, I think. Um, one of those cold European countries. Uh, I, I forget exactly uh, what that one it is. Um, but a lot of some of the things that they did with that score, uh, like T'Challa, you know, I love leitmotif. Uh, when when, when th- certain characters have certain themes. And I think what's really interesting is T'Challa's motif, his theme is all percussive. It's all percussion. It's that do-do-do, do-do-do, uh, which uh, he explained that that is, uh, that particular style of drumming is supposed to represent words. So it's T'Challa, T'Challa, which is why they, they're they chanting T'Challa like to the rhythm of it uh. Uh, later on uh, in the movie. Uh, and when those horns come in with the the fanfare the wakanda fanfare when they when they go through the force field and you first see the city for the first time it's great and you knew it was good when they brought that music cue back in infinity war and the audience went nuts uh, i remember watching it and you hear the drums when cap is saying i know so i know someplace and then it cuts to wakanda and you hear that and like everyone went crazy and it's like, hey, look at that. People getting excited about a musical theme uh, returning in a Marvel movie. <laughs> that happens like two or three times. And that's about it. Um, and the Killmonger theme is really great. Uh, what, one of the things I think is really cool about what he does with the score is that he mixes like traditional African music and styles uh, with hip hop kind of uh, kind of sound with your stereotypical you know, big orchestral movie score. And he kind of blends those, those three elements together in a really interesting way. And it, it's just a great, great soundtrack. Uh, and that's not even mentioning, uh, you know, the songs that Kendrick Lamar did for the movie as well, that they actually put out the score, the like the, the soundtrack of the score, and then like the companion album, uh, which uh, I know All the Stars was nominated for an Oscar. It didn't win, but it was nominated as well. So yeah, I was very excited about that. Uh, Bailey and I were watching the movie and one scene that kind of spoke out to both of us when they're in the T'Challa goes to the astral plane for the first time and he's he's speaking to his dad and then the music cuts for a little while as they're speaking and then it just like pipes in. You guys know what I'm talking about? Is that what it goes? Da-da! Yes! Yes! That... That exact scene was when I was watching this thinking, wow, this soundtrack is better than our, like, like not the soundtrack. I remember the soundtrack was popular, but like the uh-huh. score, the symfo- symphonic score for this film was better than I remember. And I, I wasn't down on it, but that seems like, wait, I don't think I noticed this the first time yeah. I saw this movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I'm completely yeah, with you on that. It's great. And then real quick, just talking more about Wakanda uh, and things this movie, was, movie won an Oscar for. Uh, it also won Oscars for costume design. Uh, Ruth Carter was the uh, the costume designer. Uh, she had been nominated three times. This is her third nomination, her first win, and she was the first African American to win in that category. 
Um, and I think the costumes and the, I mean, if you've seen the movie, the costumes are great. When you think of costumes in a superhero movie, you think of the Hispanics and the tights or whatever. Uh, but, but just all the different, how each tribe in Wakanda has a very distinct look. Uh, it's just really, really fascinating. And, and not just costume design, but the makeup design, the prosthetics, uh, all of that, like, um, like the guy with the, with the disc in his lip, that was prosthetic. Uh, I had to look that up because I didn't know if maybe maybe the actor actually had that, but no, that that was that was done in prosthetics, but it was you know very well done, very realistic. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's just a, uh, and I think that combines with the other thing this movie won an Oscar for, which is the production design. And uh, Hannah Beachler uh, won that alongside Jay Hart. Um, I think he he was the set designer, I want to say, and she was the production designer, um, and she was the first African-American to be nominated in the best production design category, let alone to win. And an interesting story about her is that she'd worked with Ryan Coogler and, and she's also, I think worked on every major film that he's done dating back to Fruitvale station, which I think was 2013. And when Ryan Coogler was meeting with Kevin Feige, uh, you know, Marvel has their stable of, production designers of like, Hey, we've worked with these people. We can vouch for people who know they're good. And he, Ryan Coogler said, I really would like to work with her. And Kevin Feige said, okay, bring her in. I'd love to see what, what she can do. And, you know, to his credit, he trusted this director that he had hired for this movie to, you know, have an eye for talent. And it certainly paid off because they got an Oscar for it. <laughs> so, uh, so I think, you know, as much as people will knock the Marvel, you know, movie factory. I think that it is good that they are willing, at least now, um, you know, there are certainly arguments that can be made about how things are handled in like phase two. Uh, but I think phase three, and this has been a theme kind of in every movie we talked about in phase three, each movie has a very different feel to it. And I think that the directors were able to bring a lot of their own touches to it. And that includes bringing on, you know, crew members with distinct visions that they trusted and it pays off. I think, I think the more, you know, when people talk about diversity in movies, I think uh, obviously a lot of it we talk about is cultural diversity and diversity of experiences, but I think even just diversity of, of style and that does come. And I think a lot of that can be traced back to cultural diversity as well, bringing in different, um, you know, people who were raised in, you know, you know, with different art styles, different traditions, bringing that in, it makes it more interesting for everybody. Uh, I mean, the aesthetic of this movie is Afrofuturism, and I'm not—I won't talk too much about it because I am by no means an expert. Um, but it's an aesthetic that's existed since the 1950s. It, it, you know, it's science fiction, um, but heavily influenced by the art and culture of the African continent. And uh, I mean, it's existed since the 50s. Didn't get a name until 1993. Uh, but I mean, if you look at like, like in music, Parliament Funkadelic. If you look at like their album covers that's afrofuturism right there and it really had a moment in this movie um of what you could call breaking into the mainstream which you know there's certainly maybe something to be said about an art style that's existed for over 50 60 years not being considered mainstream until it's in a billion dollar movie but uh that's better said by other people than me I just think it's real cool looking and it's neat that the whole movie has that aesthetic. I'm going to stop now because I've been talking for a while. Agreed. 
I just wanted to briefly talk about the soundtrack. So not only does this movie have a good score, it has a really good soundtrack. Um, the soundtrack was produced by Kendrick Lamar. Um, I don't think anyone else on this podcast besides me listens to Kendrick Lamar. Correct me if I'm wrong. I listen to Kendrick okay. Lamar. I think I've heard his name from your but voice But to be before. fair, I started listening to Kendrick Lamar because of you. Because I'm hip. Okay. And you're not. <laughs> okay. okay. Anyways, um, so Ryan Coogler wanted Kendrick Lamar to create original songs for the movie. And I think this is the first Marvel movie that has like original songs for it. I think so. Um, so yeah, the movie yeah, had I mean, a couple yeah. uh, songs. So there's a couple songs that are in the movie and a couple um, that are just kind of inspired by the movie on the soundtrack. So like all the stars. Yeah, that's what they used to do for superhero movies before. Yeah, like Spider-Man with uh, Chad Kroger from yes. Nickelback. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like they, yes, that's exactly what I Spider-Man movies. Exactly. I was thinking of those, and I was also, and I was thinking of the Prince, uh, Prince uh, Batman doing music. Party Man. I was also thinking about Prince doing music for Batman that wasn't actually in Batman, but the music video. <laughs> I'm not gonna stand here and wait. Um, so Ryan Coogler also, they were all bad. personally chose Kendrick Lamar because his artistic themes, like as an artist, aligned with the themes that are explored in the movie. Um, so if you've never listened to Kendrick Lamar, a lot of his music is thoughtful. Um, he is from Compton, California, so he explores um, themes dealing with that. Uh, I'm not going to get into like the history of Kendrick Lamar today, <laughs> maybe on a later podcast. <laughs> um but that's all. It's also just a very good soundtrack. I listen to it all the time. It is very, very, very good. So moving on, T'Challa has his coronation ceremony uh, before a waterfall. We also we get this like um, fun scene of T'Challa reuniting with his mother, and we get introduced to Shuri for the first time, and we get a fun interaction between the two of them. I think uh, as far as sibling connections go... I mean, it, it's rivaling Thor and Loki here. I mean, it's not necessarily, they don't have like a volatile relationship, but the their relationship as siblings, like I can relate, like, cause I, I feel like that's like me and my sister. Like mm -hmm. we're just, we're like, cool. You know, we're like, it's, it, they, there's so much regality in their system and in their world, but between the siblings, they are, they're just pals. You know, they're just like, man, me and my brothers are way more Thor and Loki. <laughs> Incredibly white. <laughs> That's part of it. Me and my, me and my siblings are like uh, the kid from Iron Man 3 and his dad. So T'Challa has his coronation ceremony below a waterfall. T'Challa is given a potion to remove the powers of the panther from him. And any, pre and any present are given the right to engage him in a physical challenge for the right of the throne as long as they are of royal blood. Every tribe declines the challenge until... Baku, leader of the Japari tribe, arrives, showing disdain for Wakanda's technology, specifically Shuri, and challenging T'Challa. T'Challa wins a fierce battle, but spares Umbaku's life and becomes king. T'Challa is given the harp-shaped herb, regaining his powers, and having a vision of his father, who warns him of difficult times ahead. Uh, this is everything that happens in this plane throughout this movie. The, 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 is it the ancestral plane? Yes. Um, throughout this movie is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, T'Challa is given the, the heart-shaped herb, blah, blah, blah. T'Challa spends time with Bikita 
in Wakanda, and Nikita insisting Wakanda should use its resources to help the rest of the world. We get uh, T'Challa and Nikita kind of walking through Wakanda. And we kind of see sort of the world that they live in and sort of this this Afrofuturism that Chris talked about a little bit earlier. And then we see something that we don't get in any other Marvel movie. Um, and we see it here at this point, but it's sort of littered throughout the rest of the movie and prior as well. We see culture. So if you think of what a Marvel movie is, what a Marvel movie traditionally adds, if you, if you were to take the Marvel formula, right, and you were to make a checklist, this movie checks every box, right? You check, you know, you've got the, the villain, we've got the superhero, we've got the conflict, we've got the hero in trouble. It kind of checks every single box. But then at the very bottom, there's an extra box that no other movie has that this box checks, and that's culture. There is a, there is a certain amount, and it's, it's hard to describe what culture is, in words, but there's just something, there's just this extra layer. You can tell that there's this extra layer of hair taken with this movie specifically. Chris already talked about the hair and makeup and all the choices that were made there, the set and all the choices that were made there, the languages, the, the languages they're speaking, there's care in every single choice that's made to make you believe and sort of, not sympathize, but really sort of hone in on this culture. And I think that's really important. And I think to me, that's why this movie stands Sort of head and shoulders above a lot of the other Marvel movies, if not all of them, to me, and it's because of that extra, that that little extra, right? The difference between ordinary and extraordinary, that little extra. What a what a nice turn of phrase that was. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it came from a cat poster, but uh... <laughs> are you about to talk? Should I say something? <laughs> I don't want to interrupt anybody. Who talks? Oh. First? You, you suddenly have problems with interrupting? Please go ahead, Peaches. I don't. That's the whole point. I said just interrupt. I don't have anything to say. I just agree with you. Yeah, same. I don't have anything. There was just a long period of silence. What, I was. What being I do an think asshole. is interesting. What I do think is That's interesting, what I do. Though, is that I had a very similar thought when I was rewatching it, basically in exactly the scene um, when we were working on the notes, and I saw this was something you want to talk about. This is what I was thinking of when I saw you write this. Um, so I absolutely agree, and it stands out a lot when they're you know touring Wakanda. Well, and I think what's another part that's really important is it doesn't just, it's clear that this is directing black culture and not just African culture. So we're, we're not talking just about some sort of, um, it's not just looking at it from, from the African perspective, but from the black perspective as a whole. So it's, it's melding sort of contemporary Amer like African-American tropes and traditions along with traditional African traditions. So you're getting a little bit of both. You're getting that, that full spectrum of, you know, modernized music. Bailey already talked about the Kendrick Lamar soundtrack mixed with the, you know, traditional African music with the traditional um, Marvel score. You're getting that as far as the clothes that they wear. You're getting that in the way in some ways when they say the Wakanda forever, and it's very formal, but in other ways, like when Shuri and T'Challa meet each other and they give each other like like the dab and then the... The Wakanda Forever, like it, it, there's there's that little extra there, which is not just African culture, but Black culture as a whole. Yeah, and uh, and some you mentioned the language, um, the language that they used for Wakandan, and I am not going to pronounce this right. Um, it is spelled X H O S A. Um, I, I'm going to click to listen to the pronunciation of of that, so we can all learn it together. Kosa. Apparently Kosa. it's Kosa. Okay, yeah, that's fun to it's say. A click. It's a click, but it's a uh, uh, it's a South African language, um, and apparently it is very closely uh, associated with uh, 
the fight against white colonizers in South Africa. So it is kind of thematically appropriate uh, in, in a couple ways for the movie. Uh, I think it's interesting because it's, uh, th- with the exception of the space Marvel movies, uh, they've all taken place either in the U.S. or, uh, I, guess, I guess, Europe. Uh, we got in Thor The Dark World and Sokovia, but that's not real. <laughs> not that Wakanda is real either. Right. But Sokovia, they don't really build out Sokovian culture very much. Right. It's just right. sort of generic Eastern European country. Um, so it, this is really kind of, and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to think through to make sure that I haven't that I'm not missing anything, and and you could argue that you know there are bits in other movies that 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 well, well I guess World War Two I mean Captain America that was also not in the U S for a, a large part of it, um, but that's historical that's historical. This they it, they created a brand new fictional culture, but one that draws from real world cultures, uh, and some that we've seen on screen before, some that aren't represented very much on screen, and I think that all stands to make it really unique in in what we've seen uh, in the MCU so far. I think unique is important because as I'm going through all the movies, I do think there's a little bit of culture in Homecoming, but I don't I think. Said that. I don't yeah. think that, like, Brooklyn, New York culture necessarily needed to have its day, if that makes sense. Like, it doesn't make Homecoming unique. I think it was in some ways well done, having not really been to New York much. Um, but it wasn't necessarily on the same level, on the same scale, or the same level of importance, or, like you said, or as unique as what you see in Black Panther. Yeah, because, like, stuff like Homecoming, like, like him stopping by the bodega, and you know, that's, that's stuff that makes it feel real and authentic. Um, but it's also not that unusual to right. see something like that represented on screen. It's uh, also so. not in, in in this movie. It's culture is embedded into the core of this movie. This movie does not work without culture. Whereas right. in Spider-Man: Homecoming, you could cut out the entire bodega scene in the movie. Would right, be right, right, right. For for Homecoming, it's a detail. For this, it's part of right. The yeah, this, right. It it's is, the identity, right? It, it is the it texture is. of this movie. The, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, especially w- with it being about the king of a country, you have to create that country's culture to understand, you know, the yeah. rest of the movie. Um, you know, because this movie is as much, because we've actually we've already met Black Panther had his introduction already, so this is now our introduction to his world. So this movie is, I'm not going to use that dumb phrase where it's like, oh, Wakanda's like at the like another character in the movie because no, it's a setting. Um, <laughs> I, I I have. I am morally opposed to saying that settings are characters, um, but I do think that settings can be just as important, if not more important, than characters in movies. And and this movie is, if anything, it's our introduction to Wakanda. So it is really important that we see Wakandan society, uh, and we're seeing it from the top. Uh, I I would love to see maybe in Black Panther two. You know, let's see how do how do the people that aren't the tribal leaders live in Wakanda. Uh, but you can only focus on so much in one movie. What do you consider... I have a conundrum for you. What do you consider the Cave of Wonders? If it can... Is it a character or a setting? That's what I want to oh. know. <laughs> it, it can be both, but it's not... It's a character because it actually looks at Aladdin and talks to him. Oh, <laughs> so, and it's a setting. 
And it's a setting because when he uh, goes inside, it's uh That's the that's the Venn diagram that I was So like uh, yeah. like Monstro from yeah. Pinocchio. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's what what I'm getting at is like when people are like, oh, hunchback of Notre Dame. Notre Dame, the cathedral is a, is as much of a character as Quasimodo. It's like, no, it's a setting. Do it's a very know, important setting, but it's a setting. Do we know the cathedral does not speak? Um it speaks metaphorically through the bells. <laughs> Well, but, maybe that's its that's its vocal cords. Well, well, I don't know. I'm just I'm saying. not saying that talking is what makes it a character, but we'll hey, have to here's... save this for our uh, Disney animation podcast. That yeah, that's is. that's fair. <laughs> hey, you know what's controversial that I'm gonna say that directly opposes uh, what you guys said definitely only a few minutes ago uh, is that I think that the scene that we're talking about right now of them walking through the marketplace and and seeing all these people wearing their different bright colored clothes and um with all the culture that they have i think that's way prettier than the flight into wakanda i don't really think no the i agree interesting wakanda nope, i agree pretty at all i think that this scene is way more colorful and visually appealing i think the flight into wakanda is just a city I i've seen a agree. city before urban sprawl is not attractive to me um yeah and the wakanda urban sprawl also looks like cg urban sprawl it yeah it doesn't bother me so much but i definitely think that the countryside um visuals now the approach to wakanda i actually do think is beautiful but once yes. you're seeing the city that doesn't really affect me this these shots yeah. do you know what well, I, I think specifically the shoot the, the the flying in is a set piece right it is it, you've got the music there you've got the it's it, there's like a there's like a build up to it and so that's yeah. why i think it's effective whereas the other one isn't necessarily like presenting you with this grand scene of the bizarre oh, yeah. but like you're getting the emotion because of how beautiful it is. It's also a wow moment if you had no idea that that's how Wakanda was kept hidden. It's like a, whoa, they flew into the trees and now they're not in the trees. What the heck, man? And like, I think what, it's what a trippy I moment. Like about, but I agree with you. I think that the colorful uh, I just think the streets other one is of Wakanda, uh, you know, I, I want to see more of that in the future. Um, but the, um, the, the approach to Wakanda where they're flying in, I mean, first of all, a big part of it is the music. I mean, if you put good music in a scene, yeah, uh, that will make that scene for me. That's just how my brain works of watching movies. Um, but also, I really like the actual design of the Wakandan city. Yeah, it looks like urban sprawl, but when you look closer, the buildings themselves, uh, the architectural choices they made, it's it it's really interesting because they had to imagine now what if you had an African nation, one that started out tribal, started out as villages that then took these technological leaps forward while also avoiding all outside influence, how would that have developed into a major city? So like the actual architectural uh, designs of the buildings, I think, are really, uh, really interesting uh, and, and makes it kind of unique. Yeah, I mean, you could say that it is, it's, it is just another big city, but it's also... Uh, and it, it has its own unique look to it. Yeah, I don't want to like. On it that much. I don't want to say that the city is not cool looking. I'm just saying that I like if you're not really paying that close of attention, it it does just kind of look like you're moving into a city. And they kind of build up to it by when uh, Black Panther is like, "This never gets old." And then you're like waiting for something amazing. And I uh, I just I think a lot of other scenes in the movie are prettier. But we're at the marketplace now. That was a long time ago. I didn't okay. say it. <laughs> I didn't say it definitely 20-ish minutes ago when we talked about it initially. <laughs> so at this point, Ulysses Claw and his associate, Eric Stevens. I would say Eric Stevens and his associate, Ulysses Claw, because Eric Stevens takes 
point in this scene. So um, they steal vibranium from the museum of Britain, uh, the museum of Great Britain. And there are a few lines in this movie that I feel like are, or specifically in this scene, that are pretty important for the rest of the movie. Um, there is a line from Eric Stevens. Um, first off, little story: a couple, maybe like a year and a half ago, Bailey and I were in New York and we went to the Met, which is like a like a museum of art in New York. And at every single um, exhibit that we saw, uh, Bailey would just kind of be looking at it. I'd be like, you're wrong. It's from Wakanda. And she'd be like, are you going to like do this every single time? And I'd be like, don't worry. I'll take it off your hands. (laughs) Uh, But after that, um, he basically, you know, kind of says that he's going to steal the item. Don't worry, I'm going to take it off your hands. And she's like, what do you mean? And he, he says the line, how do you think your ancestors got these? Do you think they paid a fair price? Or did they take it? Like they took everything else. Which is quickly establishing Killmonger as a character and a lot of what his motivations are. You can see what his intention from the very, from that first like little interaction that he has. He then tells her that the security people have been watching him ever since he came in there. Another kind of insinuation that he is not part of this world that he lives in, that that the people around him are judging him just for being there, which is, and then feeds to a lot of his character motivation for the rest of the movie. You get, they do a really good job of painting this character without hitting you over the face with his motivation, right? We don't have to see some sort of true tragic, I mean, we see him with his father later on, but I, I don't think that's as important as the world already shaping him in, in this first scene. I, th- I think it's all connected, but yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point. And I think it's something that probably a lot of people watching could relate to. Um, this is the, you know, check your privilege section of the, uh, of, of the episode. Uh, I can talk about it. Most- so Go I, ahead, um, you talk about it. I, yeah. <laughs> sure. I lived in uh, I Florida. <laughs> I lived in Florida my entire life. I was born in Puerto Rico. I moved to Florida when I was a, when I was a kid. And I lived in a very Hispanic-centric community. Um, for both, basically my entire life. So I had always grown up around other Hispanic people. It was never like strange to to live where I lived. It was all pretty the same. And then I moved up north. I moved. I live in New Hampshire now, and there is a significantly less Hispanic population here. There's also basically only one population. It is very the majority is Caucasian up here. And so uh, I'll go into places and I'll get looks that I've never gotten before in my entire life. I'll go to the grocery store and people will look at me weird. I will go get some food and everybody kind of turns and you know it's nothing is um offensive right nobody's coming up to me and saying anything offensive or being rude but i do definitely walk into a store and somebody's like you know they'll give me you know a look um and it's just something that you don't necessarily realize that people deal with right like when i lived in that world where there were hispanic people everywhere i had no idea this is how some people had to live or the i mean and it's not something that people do um i think what what Killmonger is explaining here, what he is showing here, is something definitely to a higher degree than anything that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. But just to give a little point of reference, it's just something that you wouldn't even realize happens, but happens every day. And he does then kill her, but... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Which undermines... Technically, his girlfriend kills her, but... Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Also, you said that Loki's intro into the series was, like, one of the coolest, like, character introductions. Um... 
And putting aside like how like important this scene is to establishing Killmonger's character, it's just like a really cool scene to introduce someone. Like I think it's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's definitely my favorite character introduction. Like he just like it's just he's so cool and you immediately understand his motives like you said um and he's just a very compelling villain i think well and i think he's so compelling because and um it's tough to understand that he is even a villain because a lot of his motivation you could just be like yeah that makes sense like if i was killmonger (laughs) absolutely like if this is if this is the the hand that life had dealt me i'd probably be the exact same way which i think is why he's so relatable Moving on. Uh, Chris gonna say something. Oh, Chris, you got something else? Oh, you no, know, I was going to, and I feel like this is something that we'll talk about as, as we go on because we're going to talk about Bill Killmonger in this episode, I know. No, this yes. is the last uh, time. Uh, oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, he's definitely a character where even if you you don't agree with his methods, you certainly understand why he's doing the things he does. Right. Uh, and that's what, and that's what makes a good sympathetic villain, I think, is that you're like, Oh, they're a villain, and you just like they're the ones that you root for, not because oh, I, you're not rooting for them to win, but you're like, I wish that one thing could have been different in their lives so that they could have had a good life, or you Absolutely. know, turned out differently. And and you're like, you know, it is. I think a sympathetic, you know, there there are sympathetic villains who are like, oh, you know, maybe maybe there's a glimmer of good to them, and then there's super sympathetic villains where they're sympathetic because the fact that they are a villain is a tragedy in itself. And and I think that's that's the category Killmonger falls into. And he does some awful things in this movie, and and his plan is is horrifying when you think about it. Uh, but you certainly understand where he came from, and and you understand his his rage. I honestly don't think his plan is that horrifying. I but mean, he was going to kill like most nations. Um, he wasn't technically. You know what? We'll get to it when we get to it. Okay. All right. Um, we'll see how it goes. I, w- I think that's that'll be an interesting debate because I don't think his plan is that outrageous. I think it is outrageous, but I don't think it's as outrageous as we think it is. I think it's as if people would have listened to him. Like, he just want. We don't... We'll get into it. We'll get into it. (laughs) That comes later. Uh, So Killmonger, he steals a mask. It basically looks like the Killmonger mask from the comics, which I didn't know, but that mask is super cool. And he looks at it and he said, I'm just Mm -hmm. stealing this. And he he takes it, which is dope. Um, (laughs) Wakanda becomes aware of Claw's desire to steal the vibranium, and T'Challa decides to go after him. T'Challa's younger sister, Shuri, the head scientist of Wakanda, outfits her brother with a variety of tech, including a new microbot suit that has the ability to store and release kinetic energy. This scene between Shuri and T'Challa is one of my favorites of the whole movie because those two actors have such good chemistry with each other. And the jokes that they are telling to each other are so relatable. Like when she asks him why his toes are out in her lab, I like cry every time she says <laughs> I like the little secret hand the Wakanda forever. Yeah, dude. Thing. I wonder if they um, intentionally referenced Vine. Oh, yeah, oh, they definitely did. They like, definitely, was she oh, yeah. try, were they trying to show that she was hip and cool by referencing yes. Vine? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah uh, that's kind of showing how young she is. That she, yeah. You know, this is what <laughs> the kind of thing she references. I like it. Yeah, I think they, they're just so, they work so well together. And I think Black Panther 2 will be really interesting to see how their relationship is now. Um, so I'm really excited for Black Panther 2 because there's all kinds of crazy stuff that could have happened in this in this world. And I wonder um, if they are going to eventually get to Shuri being Black Panther because she was in the comics for a little while. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So 
So um, T'Challa's the Black Panther, Okoye and Nakia travel to South Korea to interrupt Claw's deal. Um, when they find him, they also find CIA, CIA agent Everett Ross, previously met in Civil War, and he's the buyer. So I had an epiphany watching this movie, and I, I didn't know if I was going to say this or not, but I'm going to say it. Everett Ross is an important character in this movie because he is the audience's point if they are unfamiliar with this culture or with this type of culture. If you yes. are from an... <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. If you are from an audience member's point of view who doesn't really understand this kind of culture, the way this kind of culture functions, Everett Ross is your point to be like, oh, Everett Ross is there to ask the questions that I want to ask because he's also kind of confused by what's going on. And he, he kind of serves that point, which is really interesting because traditionally that the, the role is reversed. You would see a Caucasian sort of group and then there would be sort of a token person of color there to kind of be the reference point for that world and in this movie you have the caucasian role being the point of reference for those that don't necessarily connect with the culture all right we're going to reference my favorite joke that went around when this movie came out or when the first poster came out and someone pointed out that the only two white people on the uh poster were bilbo baggins and Gollum, and someone said <laughs> And someone oh said they're the, they're the Tolkien white guys. Yeah. <laughs> How did I never? I never made that I connection that. until right now. <laughs> it was just such a. It's one of those. I'm the sort of person that if someone makes a really funny joke, I get angry that I didn't think of it first. And that was like <laughs> that is one of the greatest puns I have ever heard. <laughs> I think Ross is an important character for this movie to be successful because it, 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 he's a point of reference. I think Robbie can already agree with what I'm saying here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but he's a, he's sort of a point of reference for those that don't necessarily understand the culture. Um, and I think that's great. I think it's great for somebody to be there to kind of help usher in people that probably wouldn't have connected with the movie if they hadn't, if he hadn't been there. I mean, I, 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 I got what Wakanda is because Wakanda is from you know, the comics and they did a pretty good job with it of being what I know Wakanda. However, you're 100% correct on what, on the role Ross is serving. And I think it serves very well. Mm-hmm. And they even give him, and we'll get to this, they even start here where he is, I mean, being the CIA buyer, he is being that colonial bad guy that, you know, is essentially what created Killmonger. Um, and that's, and he gets his redemption moment through the course of the film as he starts to, you know, be accepted, uh, you know, sort of accepted into the culture and learns the culture and helps them as well. Um, so I think you're completely correct. And I think he's got an interesting arc in the movie, and I think it's an underrated part of the movie. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think I think well, Martin Freeman just is usually great anyway. Yeah. And I, oh, and I, also Martin Freeman is great, absolutely. Yeah, but I, so, I would at this point in the film, at this bullet point that we're on in this movie, I would definitely not be calling Everett Ross the good guy. Yeah. No. No. Sure. Yeah. It's like he's like okay, we know him. He's he's the American in the movie. Uh, we've seen him. He he helped capture Zemo eventually, and well, he didn't help capture him, but he helped imprison Zemo. So at least he had that going for him. So we know him as a as a quote unquote good guy. But when you think about it, it's like okay, he wants to buy this stolen, this twice stolen material uh, for presumably military use or something. Uh, 
I don't know if they're just going to melt it down and make another Captain America shield or what they're going to do because they don't even know what vibranium can do. But still, it, like he said, and I and actually don't think I'd ever made that connection before that he is, you know, acting as the, you know, when Shuri calls him colonizer later as, as a joke, just, you know, she's just doing it to make him uncomfortable, which is funny. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, when you think about it, yeah, he, he's going after their their natural resources here indirectly, but still, uh, still doing that. I think, Robbie, the problem with Everett Ross being underrated in this movie is that there are so many strong performances in this movie that you just, the list is so long, and Ross is part of that list. Yeah, It's yeah. just so absolutely expansive how many great performances are in this movie oh. that Ross can sometimes be a little overshadowed. Oh, I Watch think you're like, correct. Oh, although yeah, he's good too. <laughs> although I don't so much mean the acting performances being underrated, as in I find his character arc to be one of the more interesting parts of the film. Um, in I think it's of, designed for you specifically to find it more relatable. Well, honestly, I don't find him that relatable. I just find it interesting. Well, I think it's designed for you to connect with that character more. I think I that is a character, character at all. Well, you're saying that you enjoy his arc the most, and I think that is. I wouldn't say I enjoy it the most. I enjoy just enjoy it a lot. Quick power ranking of every Leo. character. Leo. <laughs> trying to put words in your mouth here. Yes, he is. <laughs> um, but in terms of best performance, this is no insult to it. It's not near the top of the list, and that's that's literally no insult to insult to Martin Freeman. I think that's the point that I was trying to make: is that yeah. he does a fantastic performance. But there are just so many strong performances oh, in absolutely. this movie that it just, yeah. you kind of have to just keep moving on, you know? So, the deal goes south. Oh, also, when they get to the scene in Korea, there's this, like, Korean rap song that comes on, and that is an absolute banger. And <laughs> it just kind of continues the, tra the, like, yeah. the track of this movie having fantastic music. Mm -hmm. um, so, the deal goes south. A fight followed by a car chase where Claw shows off the arm Ultron severed and has been replaced with a sonic cannon. Um, special shout out to one of the coolest things I've ever seen in an action sequence in a car chase, when Okoye stands on top of her car and throws her spear directly through the car in front of them so that it lands on the ground in front of that car, causing that car to flip over the spear. Mm -hmm. That is one of my favorite action beats ever. I just even, love that. Even before that, all of her fighting... Yes. All of her fighting in the casino room oh, yeah. is goddamn awesome. All of Akoye's everything in the entire movie is and oh, the, absolutely. the camera work, the camera work uh -huh. between everybody fighting in that scene is also really neat. Uh, something I want to mention about the, I think this scene is the best place to mention it. Uh, what we see of Claw, I mean, we what we saw of him in Ultron is that he's a little strange, definitely. Um, but like in this scene, like we're really starting to see like how unusual he is. Mm -hmm. Um, like when, uh, with his mixtape. Yes. Like with the mistake, when <laughs> Ross makes the joke about, oh, you're, uh, you have a mixtape coming out and he goes, oh yeah, I can send you the SoundCloud. And then later on when he shoots whatever and the money's flying everywhere and he, and he says, I made it rain <laughs> and he's laughing. And I think there is an interpretation there where you have this, this um, I don't know where he's supposed to be from. He, he's, but he's South African, I think. South African, he's, yeah. He's supposed to be South African. Oh, he's South African, yeah. Uh, but, but again, you have this, this, this man of European descent uh, who is going into an African nation and stealing their resources. 
I mean, that's pretty on the nose when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is also this white guy who is talking about dropping his mixtape and using phrases like making it rain and all these other things that are associated with, with African-American culture uh, specifically, I think. And um, I don't know. I, I just think that it's like a microcosm, sort of like a metaphorical, uh, you know, on a much smaller scale of what he's doing on, on a large scale. Not that, you know, white people can't drop mixtapes or whatever, but but he's definitely like affecting uh, or, or like taking on as an affectation um african-american culture in, in certain ways uh that i think could be viewed as uh as a perhaps a satirical look at that well and also at this point everything you said there is is important and also at this point he's just not coming off as a serious threat which makes it so jarring when all of a sudden someone is taking things seriously as a villain yeah jarring in a good way I mean. mm-hmm. so at this point We've got that that big fight that we talked about. We got um, Shuri showing up with uh with that remote control, basically a remote control car. Uh huh. Um, and then the heroes manage to capture Claw and form an uneasy alliance with Ross to take him in. Ross then interrogates Claw, and Claw's tell, Claw tells Ross about Wakanda's tech and massive stores of vibranium, which no one outside the country but him knows about. Uh, during the invest or the interrogation, Claw um, Killmonger arrives and rescues Claw. Ross takes a bullet to protect Nakia, and T'Challa puts on his suit and gives chase. He uh, he kind of gives up, and he sees the ring around Killmonger's neck. Um, Stevens wearing the Killmonger mask is able to fuse the Panther's kinetic energy, and once again, T'Challa recognizes he has a Wakandan royal ring around his neck. Uh, against Okoye's wishes, Ross is taken back to Wakanda, where the superior medical tech can save his life. As Claw and Stevens' crew begin to leave, Stevens turns on, uh, turns on and kills every uh, everyone, revealing to Claw that he is Wakandan before delivering the killing shot to Claw. Now, Robbie, I could, in some ways, show parallels between Claw's arc in this movie and, and the Mandarin's this. arc mm-hmm. in Iron Man Three. Uh, you cut me off at the first. For some, this could feel like a similar, if you are a fan of the character, a similar type situation. Yeah, although I think we all agreed that we understood why the Mandarin was altered, because the Mandarin was super problematic if it was done accurately. Um, So this is not, since this is an MCU retrospective and not just a Black Panther retrospective, this is not really anything I think hurts this movie. Um, the turn of, so we had Andy Serkis's, um, Ulysses Claw. We get introduced to him in Ultron. Um, he's kind of made out to be this future character. He is playing the Black Panther's classic nemesis. Um, I think they did a great job with making him Andy Serkis for all the reasons that Chris already spelled out. Andy Serkis is playing a very interesting character. Um, they did a great job of bringing his, uh, stupid sound hand gun into films in a way that is not a stupid sound hand gun. Um, he's not actually made of sound. He just has a sonic blaster hidden in his hand. Um, and th- so the character is very interesting. And then this turn is very interesting. Killmonger turning on him, becoming, you know, we find out his motivations. He starts becoming a much more serious and um, threatening and compelling uh, villain than Kill- than um, Claw was. Is all extremely interesting. But when I... 
And it bothers me less on, on repeat viewing because when I watched it in the film, I was so excited for Claw in the MCU and then that shot just took me out of the film. And I remember you text me right after yes. you got out of the movie yes. and you were so <laughs> upset and you <laughs> used some bad words when talking about what happened. Yes. To Claw, and then I was really angry at you for not liking the movie. So I'm I, glad that you I did like the calm down. I did like the movie. I still don't like that Claw was just removed from the MCU with basically one encounter with the Black Panther. Um, it works well in the film, and I'm not a smart enough producer to know how you could have made it work well in the film and also keep Claw in the MCU. So it is again no criticism of the film because the film works very well with it. I'm just sad we didn't get more claw in the MCU. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, I'm not sad we didn't think, get more claw I, I, in Black Panther, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't see how you tell the story that this movie wants to tell without having Killmonger kill and, Claw and deliver his body to the border truck. And we've already I talked. Think claw could come back. <laughs> Somehow Claw returned. Uh, if they make it not stupid, then I'm down. But I don't know how they make it not stupid. Um, Black Panther 2 starts out, the dead speak! And so it's interesting <laughs> that this film is like the tale of two villains. And this is stuff we've already kind of talked about and we will continue to talk about. But you've got this, you know, this comedic villain that's set up as the main villain. who, And then just halfway through the film, you switch over to something, you know, uh, both more compelling and a bit darker. Although with more, more understandable motivations. Um, and, and we're obviously going to, I think we're going to just keep saying throughout this whole episode how great Killmonger is. And he's already been great. I agree with what Bailey said with the museum scene. He, he is interesting the moment he's on screen in the museum scene, and it, I think it just gets better as the movie goes on. Um, so this is one of the most fascinating takes on two different villains I think I've ever seen in any comic book movie, let alone MCU. Um, they're both fantastic. I wish we got more of both of them. And that's another thing. Like, Killmonger's death at the end of this film is fantastic. And I also wish we somehow got more of him. You can't have everything you want. But um, they're both, I, I think, both fantastic villains. Now, not saying that Claw is on the level Killmonger is at. And we're going to, I know, continue to talk about it as this goes on. But it's very interesting having both of these fascinating vil um, villains in the movie. And... Through repeat viewing, I've come to appreciate both of them more for what they are. What I'm thinking of when we're talking about killing off villains and not being able to use them in the future, for whatever, for whatever reason, the movie that keeps coming to mind for me is 1989 Batman. Yes. Where they kill, they kill Joker at the end, and it's like, what a waste. Yeah. You just killed Batman's biggest villain, and now you can't use him in future movies. And I like that the MCU kind of avoids that a lot. Yeah. And... and, and and where and while I appreciate because I, I I find both these characters very interesting, and and I think both performances are great in their own ways, um, I'm not necessarily upset that they. I, I don't think that it's like a flaw of the movie that they killed off these villains yeah, the way I, I do with with that Batman. Yeah, I definitely don't mean to say I think it's a flaw. I don't think it's a flaw of the yeah. movie. It's just something I, I get that what you're saying. I miss for future MCU movies. I understand that. Yeah, it's like, oh man, I liked that actor. I like that character. It would have been cool to see them back in, uh, you know, back in future movies. But people die, <laughs> so so I get it. You, yeah, you, yeah. they have to give you what you need and not what you want. Sometimes 
um, I think a really storytellers. Important part, a really important facet to this is that Andy Serkis is just doing such a great job. Mm-hmm. You can tell he's having so much fun playing this mm-hmm. character and people actually getting to see his actual face on screen for a change. <laughs> yes. You know? <laughs> I was say that uh, he, everyone loves him for what he does with performance capture, but like right. he is a really good actor yeah. like in general, and I would like to see him in more things. I liked him in King Kong. I mean, I know a lot of people don't necessarily like that movie, but I thought he was good in that. I don't because I can't think about it without thinking about him being eaten by giant bugs, and I cannot take that scene. I've never watched rewatched King Kong because of that scene. That's that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> bugs are gross, and I don't like them. <laughs> that's why I don't watch Temple of Doom very often. Same, much. same, same. Yeah. Or if I do, I start watching halfway through. So T'Challa confronts his aide, uh, Zudi, Keeper of the heart-shaped plant garden about Stephen's identity. Zuri explains. Forrest Whitaker. He, My God, the cast. Oh yeah. I mean, it just Sorry. you just you keep going. I, t- I talked to Bailey about this earlier, but the cast in this movie, after this movie, they all just kind of like took off and are all doing crazy, fantastic things. Two of them are in um, were in Us. Uh, uh-huh. Michael B. Jordan continues to just be an absolute star. Yeah. Uh, Chadwick Boseman is in all kinds of crazy action movies. Like everybody in this movie has either already been a gigantic star or is now a gigantic star after all, all the ones that weren't already Oscar winners probably will be someday. Mm-hmm. Assuming that, you know, they ever get nominated. That would involve, you know, the Academy paying attention to movies. Uh, but, you know, that's. I have, that rant comes up later, uh, so I will I will keep that quiet for <laughs> <laughs> Um But yeah, but like Forrest Whitaker has an Oscar, right? Didn't he win for uh, playing Idi Amin? Did I make that up? Yeah, and and Lupita Nyong'o won for Twelve Years a Twelve Years a Slave. Should have been nominated for us. Um, I feel very strongly about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is just a, a great, great cast, top to bottom. Zuri explains that he was a spy, keeping track of T'Challa's brother in Oakland, Unjobu, T'Challa's uncle, was trying to steal vibranium and Wakanda technology to help and sub- to help aid subjugated nations of African descent around the world. Uh, I think this is another really powerful scene uh, where we get to see the death of Unjobu. Um, and there are some interesting concepts, and I'll let Bailey kind of lead the lead the way on this one. Um, so I read a bunch of think pieces on Black Panther. So if you are a loser that wants to read think pieces reacting to movies and pulling out themes that aren't like the main theme of the movie, like one of the main themes of the movie is like family um, and like fatherhood, but then there's like some underlying themes like. Um, international relations concepts that come up a lot in the movie. Um, I have a degree in political science, so I'm glad that I can put it to use for once. (laughs) (laughs) On this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So four of like the big um, kind of ideas of international relations in the movie, um, some of them have already come up. So Wakanda is very isolationist. that's kind of how they've thrived and avoided, like, you know, colonialism is they've been very isolated. They keep their resources to themselves. They focus on themselves. Um, I mean, they take care of their own people, but they're really focused on themselves. Um, they don't engage in any trade anywhere else in the world, and they don't 
I think uh, the movie also says they don't like accept resources or aid from anywhere else in the world. They're just their own little island, effectively. Um, and then there's Nakia, who is really focused on humanitarian efforts, and she wants to bring refugees into Wakanda. Um, and T'Challa doesn't want that because he thinks that doesn't seem relevant to anything in the real world. <laughs> yeah, and that's another really interesting uh, idea is that. Wakanda doesn't want to have refugees because they think it will kind of ruin their way of life, having people that are different from them. And then they've kind of thrived on secrecy as well. They'll bring their problems with them. I think, yeah. I think it's what um, uh, I'm blanking on Daniel Kaluuya's Wakabi. Wakabi, thank you. Yeah, I never remember his name. I just call him Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's like, they'll bring their problems with them too. And yeah. Yeah, and he brings, going, up, I... he brings up his own idea as well. He says, you know, like, we don't want to bring refugees here, but if you say, like, me and my men should go out and clean up the world, um, we would do that. So that's, like, another strategy is to... Wow, that's not relevant to anything. Is <laughs> <laughs> like, let's not take any refugees, but we can let's solve problems some. from the outside. By... <laughs> Um, and then there is Killmonger's kind of way of thinking which is very like militant but he also just wants to use Wakanda's resources to help um, the rest of the world well to help um, their people he says and he doesn't really get into details and what that would entail but I would assume he means like you know by all means necessary and he also says, like, we, Wakanda could rule. Um, so, a little dictator y. Well, I, I think when I. <laughs> there are certain points where you go, yeah, that makes sense. Like, at first, when he's saying that big speech, he talks about giving weapons to those people who are oppressed so they can take down their oppressors. And at some point, you go, yeah, I can kind of sympathize with that. People mm-hmm. oppress people, taking down their oppressors. Then he goes, and kill them and their children. Right. And then you right. go, Wait, wait, hey, hang on a second. Wait, hold Not on. Not just the men, <laughs> right. the women, the children, too. It reminds me of, like, those Twitter memes of, yeah, right on. Wait, what? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, what I, th- what I think is interesting about Killmonger's whole plan is that it's just imperialism and colonialism, but in reverse. Yeah. Is what it is. And You imperialized and I, us, we'll imperialize you. Yeah, it's an eye for an eye, which, uh, on some level... You know, I think as as humans, we find the idea of revenge appealing, uh, but revenge breeds revenge breeds revenge as well. Um, and I, he has a line, yeah, the sun will never set on the Wakandan Empire, which is what they always said about the British Empire, and and the Romans still say that, and the Roman Empire, yeah, uh, because they're spread so far that the sun is always rising out somewhere. So he's he's flipping the script on on colonialism, which I think is a really interesting plan. But at the end of the day, it's still colonialism. And uh, what I wrote my notes was: you either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that's wrong franchise. I know. I, I keep bringing up Batman for some reason uh, today. Um, it's probably There's always a reason. Pointy-eared black mask that's uh, doing it. But I mean, that, I I think that's he's he's like the next step of. Uh, you know, I think Wakabe's plan even is, is too far about 
you know, we could rule, yeah. and that's and Killmonger is just trying to put that into action, which is why Wakabi goes along with it. And Killmonger's um, accusations in this scene are completely accurate. Like, you're just hiding here in your fancy cities while people just like you are suffering around the world. He's absolutely right. It's just yeah, yeah. his plan is to then make the cycle even more vicious. It's... And I wanted to back up a little bit to something Bailey said about, about Nakia's um, thing. Nakia makes the exact same points that Killmonger does at the beginning of the movie. Uh, when they're walking through, and then the scene that Peaches said he likes, uh, where they're walking through the town, uh, the the capital city in Wakanda, and, and she's saying we could use our resources to help people. We could do this. We, and that's everything Killmonger said. And just she's saying it in a humanitarian way, and he's saying it in a vengeful way. And uh, and and I and I I think that's really interesting, and that and that's why, again, that I think that Killmonger is sympathetic because you're like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you to a point. Uh, you know, it's like you're you're not wrong. And and, and then I think one other thing, the, there's a scene between Nakia and Okoye in the throne room uh, after Killmonger has taken on uh, the the mantle of king. Spoilers, uh, which, which I know comes a little bit later. But since I think it fits into sort of the international relations talks, I'm going to bring it up just now, uh, where Nakia or Okoye still feels duty-bound as the leader of the Dora Milaje that she is bound to serve the throne no matter who sits on it. And Nakia's loyalty is with, not just with T'Challa, but with what she thinks the Wakandan ideals are. And, and as I said before, I don't think that's relevant to anything uh, today, but um, it, you know, it's, you know, it becomes like, do you, are you loyal to the institutions or or to to you know what your conscience says is right, and and in the end, Okoye does come around. I mean, it helps that by a loophole she's able to do that. Uh, but but I think it does raise some interesting questions, uh, and, and I think that scene in particular is, is just a really well acted, very powerful dialogue scene. I, lo- I love it when oh I leave a superhero action movie and like oh I like that scene where they talked. Yeah, one of the things I put in my notes is uh, Michael B. Jordan's delivery of. Hey, Auntie, is one of the best yes. things I've ever heard on film. Love it. Love it. Peaches, you also had some feelings about resources in general in this movie and the, the, the theme of Wakanda having resources to share around with the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. I'm on Team Nakia all the way there. But I'm also, and and I people just say this before they say something political. So here, I'm just going to say it. Not trying to get political on this platform. Too late. Uh, but I'm like, it's hard not to get political about this movie. I'm like, I'm like two seconds away at any given point from going full socialist. If I could change everything, I would. Um, but I think she makes a valid point, and I think one huge theme of this movie, and, and there's a lot of very important themes of this movie, but one is a nation represented by T'Challa and his colleagues, if you will, realizing that they are powerful and they can use that power to do good in the world. And I think. Chris continually joking about how this movie doesn't have to do with anything relevant today. Like every time I see this movie, I'm reminded of how powerful that message is. And that's why this movie hits a little harder for me is because I feel like, you know, we are all very privileged to live where we live. Um, Not like New Hampshire and Florida, but in this country. And I think, I think this country and, and other nations in the world too, in general, just, 
take for granted the amount of power they have to, they could have to help people and um, just be better. And I think that that theme of this movie really hits home for me. And I, you know, I'm on Team Nakia. Like, go out and help the world. Like, maybe not just let every single human on the planet pour into Wakanda, but find some happy medium where we can all use our, the vast resources we have to do something meaningful with them, you know? And it, it just, let's do that here too. Let's do that in real life and in Wakanda. Yeah, I think this movie is really important because of the messages that it tells, right? There are a few Marvel movies that, that kind of have, a, have something to say, but none of them have as much to say and have as powerful of a message as Black Panther. You know, I, the, the, the next closest movie is not anywhere even in the ballpark, right? Yeah, and you'll get feels from the other movies, but nothing that is as, like, real of a problem. Right. You know? Also, it's interesting, because I remember in Iron Man, you guys talked about the theme of, like, patriotism and war and how great and powerful the U.S. is, and then I feel like the themes here... Are different and make. I mean, almost even <laughs> contradictory to those themes, right? Well, and I don't know if if you remember yeah. Bailey in the Avengers episode, we talked about how the MCU started moving away from that and thus lost their um, their support from the military and using um, like the MCU started losing its support from the American military government and using you know tanks and planes and getting to use them in their films. Yeah, I think it. I think it was different in. Like, these two movies are so far apart, like, literally chronologically, but also message-wise, because Iron Man isn't trying to, like, isn't trying to say anything powerful. It's just, it's a story of a guy who had a lot and then didn't have a lot and then created a lot and, you know, he was cocky and, you know, yes, there's a lot of, like, America in Iron Man, but it's not really about america it's oh yeah that's not what i meant i just meant that it's interesting to flag like how far the mcu has come in 10 years and what like the underlying themes are of movies oh yeah 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 true i'd argue that maybe iron man does have something to say because it's about a warmonger realizing that he is the problem and now trying to atone for that but i think this movie probably has more to say than that and and i yeah and it's more relatable, in my opinion. The, the theme, the things that are going on in we are a lot more relatable than it's telling the message of a warmonger, but not all of us can specifically relate to being. Also, I think you made it very clear that like you don't love Tony Stark. You, you also like, hate Tony. Stark. Personally, I don't like Tony Stark. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. But I do find this movie more relatable for me personally. Same page. But I think that's already obvious to everyone. Uh, so at this point, Zuri poses an accomplice and gives him up to, Ch- to Chaka. He poses him as accomplice to Njobu. Um, enraged, Njobu pulls a gun on Zuri, and T'Challa or T'Chaka kills his own brother to protect Zuri. Njobu's young son Eric is left behind in Oakland. This is while- not what my sibling relationship is like. <laughs> while T'Chaka swears Zuri to secrecy, uh, Eric Stevens, Killmonger, arrives in Wakanda. Shows his proof of heritage and offers the body of Kala's barter for entry. Since we didn't know this was going to go to two parts, obviously I have to do the wrap up. 
Please follow us on Twitter at AssemblyCast. Like us on Facebook as well. Email us at assemblyrequiredcast at gmail.com. You could follow me on Twitter at GatorSax2010. You could follow Eduardo at ABCDEduardo1. Follow Peaches at D underscore Peaches with a 3 and a Z because he's cool. Follow Robbie at PhilKid3. You can follow Bailey at Braleykins with with a Z at the end. Everyone, I gotta get one of those. But yeah, uh, stay tuned next week for part two. Uh, so until next time, uh, great, I gotta do drive once. We love you 3000. Excelsior. Hail Hydra. Boobly boobly. Are you gonna do ASMR? Bye. Officer, I got one question for you. What are you